There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to this week's podcast, Win Stanley Shoes, a Dublin family business. I'm Maurice O'Keefe and over the next coming weeks, I will be bringing you podcasts relating to seven family Dublin businesses and they will include this week Winstanley Shoes and next week Eleanor Wood Limited followed by Jacob's Biscuits, Bewley's, Smith & Pearson and Ernie Chocolates. These are all part of a collection under the business category in our Century of Change Oral History Project. So you can see this for yourself if you visit our website irishlifeandlore.com We start with this week's interview that I did with Dennis O'Neill who I recorded at great length about his family's business history and this was my second visit to his home in County Wicklow when he takes up the story here when he and his two brothers entered the business after his father died. Dennis O'Neill, it's, it's good to be back with you again uh, in your own house here in County Wicklow. You were the managing director uh, with your brother Brian uh, of Winstanley. Correct, yeah. Dad took on running it uh, with the help of um, his father-in-law, TJ, and until about 1947 when TJ died and Dad then took it on full time. Uh, Arthur, the other brother who was in the business, had to uh, made a disastrous purchase of a shipload of leather at some stage and they paid him then to stay out of the business so he just came in once a week to sign the cheques for which he was paid a, a stipend. <laughs> but uh, my father then was the sole uh, runner of the business in, from 47 until uh, 52 when I joined the business. Um, unfortunately, my father died in 1962 and I ended up then being the MD chairman of the whole shooting bang. That was the factory and the shops. But I had two brothers a brother Brian, who uh, came in and he was in charge of the production, and Michael, my youngest brother, who took on the running of the shops. So mm -hmm. Michael was a, a very independent younger brother and wanted to do his own thing, so we eventually uh, shed, Brian and myself shed our interests in the shops and let him have the sole owning and running of the shops, and we carried on running the business. Tell me where the shops were located. Right. Well, from memory, uh, the shops, there was 36 corn market. And then when I uh, joined the business, the following addresses were still up in operation. There was one in Camden Street. There was one in Talbot Street. There was one in North Earl Street. And the main shop was in George Street. But uh, before I joined the business, uh, they had one in, T in Capel Street as well. I see. Win Stanley, one of the... the the names in Dublin at the time, you know, it it was, yes. uh, it was one of the the bigger of the factories uh, producing um, and and employing so many people there. Yes, it was bang in the middle of the Liberties, and it was uh, a big employer at the time, and with the shops as well, and it had grown terribly quickly, and I can't really find out why it's grown so quickly. Um, I'm looking at the financial bits and pieces that I can find and they didn't make fantastic amounts of money although if you mm. put it into today's terms um, it was probably millions um, they, the, the Smalley brothers uh, who were left running the factory they were Winstanley's half-brothers and they became they were Smalley because Winstanley's mother had married us again 
and Mr. Smalley. And one of them, Ralph, uh, had made huge investments in shipping. Mm-hmm. And they had nine little coasters, and that's the chart I joined of one of them. Like uh, nine little coasters, which he invested in. He had a 40% share in these nine coasters, uh, named all sorts of interesting things, including one of them called the Wind Stanley that sank off Hollyhead in 1913 or 14, I think. Once mm-hmm. again, I'd need to get the exact dates. But um, they, they seem to have taken their eye off the off the ball a little bit and certainly by the time we came down to my grandfather and his cousin Tom uh, the place was just ticking on ticking over I don't think there was much entrepreneurial effort made at that time certainly Tom had written to his father Ralph pleading with him to update the factory and buy new machinery and there was uh, a reluctance, I think, to invest more money, whereas in Winstanley's time, they threw everything at it and got all the latest equipment from America and so mm. on. So it, it makes fascinating reading. And when you came into the business, uh, did you, were you, was that the direction that you were heading towards? You know, you came out of school and... Um, um, I don't know. My dad was ill... Um, he he suffered a lot from depression, or you could call it in today's terms, bipolar. And he was in and out of nursing home at the, the time I was leaving school. And I, I'd never really considered doing anything else other than going to the mm. business. And my two brothers as well. Um, in those days, uh, you tended to do as you were told. <laughs> mm. <laughs> uh, you weren't encouraged to fly the nest. And, of course, in the 50s, it was a really bad time in Ireland. And uh, it was a job. I didn't, go, I didn't go to university because Dad was ill and I went straight into the business at 18. I left school in July and I started work in September. And what about your education? Where was it? I was at school here in Ireland until I was 13. And then I went to a school, public school in England where my uncle was a housemaster. They thought it would be a good idea to send me to the uncles. Yeah. And were you brought up in the uh, I was brought up tradition? In, I was in. I brought up in Dublin, Terenio. Oh yes, you you were. But your your family did they were they Protestants or Catholics or? Oh, a Protestant family. Um, Church of Ireland. Church of Ireland. Uh, my dad was Presbyterian from the north, but my mother uh, was Church of Ireland, and my grandfather was mixed up with the the uh, representative church body, as was my Dorothea Smalley, was mixed up with Christ Church. Old Mrs. Winstanley uh, was heavily involved in St. Ordens, and when her husband died, she left. he left money to St. Ordens to build a parochial hall, and she gave money to both Christ Church and Patrick's to found what was known as the Winstanley Medal for the choristers. Yes. The top chorister each year got the Winstanley Medal and a watch and I think £50 pounds towards his health, uh, his lodgings and so on. So there was a, a big interest in, in trying to put some money back into the community. And Mrs. Winstanley, when she died, uh, left a whole load of money to the Chorley Hospital and they were able to build a new wing on it. Um, to a surgical wing on Chorley Hospital, which is still there, I believe. So, yes, there was a Protestant ethos, and Winstanley was the first... Uh, no, wait, I get this right. He was. They, they were amazed that he got made Lord Mayor because he was the only Protestant on the council, and he got elected then, which is unusual for a, an Englishman, and a Protestant Englishman at that to become Lord Mayor of Dublin. But he never took that office because, he, as I say, he fell off the horse and died afterwards. Mm-hmm. And your upbringing in Turn uh, that was a nice part of the city to, to live in and to grow up in. Yeah, it was, we were two doors down from my grandparents mm-hmm. and uh, it was great. We had a, a lovely childhood there. We were bombed, we were bombed during the war. <laughs> <laughs> the house opposite us had a bomb in their back garden and if there'd been another one I wouldn't be here to tell you the story. Wow. 
My goodness, that was close. <laughs> it was very <laughs> uh, when Six bombs were dropped, yeah. and would you believe it, each one landed on a Jewish property. Six bombs in the stick. Is that... Yeah. So I was told. Oh, yes. When you entered the factory in, uh, in 1952 at the age of 18, yeah. uh, so wh- wh- what, were you, what were your first uh, impressions and what were you put doing? Well, I was put to the bottom rung of the ladder and, and had to go and work in each department or under the wing of the, the foreman to learn all about it. And after six months, I went over to England to the K factory. K Shoes uh, had an association with us at that time. And I spent six months working in their factory, once again going around uh, studying every aspect of the shoemaking, but not allowed to actually do it. Except at, by the end of my trip, I had to have designed and had made my first design shoe. And that was the start. And then about a year later, I went and spent three months with the Clark's organization, which we also had a connection with. And I'll tell you more about that. Mm. But then I came back to the factory and it was a really difficult time in in Ireland at that time, 53, 54. Got married in 58, but all the time we were, uh, short time was work being worked. And I was on the sales side really at the, at that time and we had to you'd go into work at lunchtime and you'd have to sell something to do by the following morning you never knew really what was going to happen from one day to the next but we struggled through anyway and um, we joined up we took on the manufacturing of the cashews for sale in Ireland and we also made some for Saxone which was a retail outlet here and um we made some for Clark's eventually as well. And Clark's eventually bought our retail shops in, I don't know the date here, probably in the early 70s. Mm-hmm. But um, we had, it's very relevant to tell you that we had the manufacturing of these brands uh, in Ireland. Uh, we had to replicate the range that Kay was selling in the UK and I was heavily involved in all of that and the design and the and the making of it, but not the physical making. My brother Brian was in production and he worked under Mr. Wilson, who was, had come from Kettering in England as a factory manager. But uh, the the implication, uh, the, the importance of Kay was that they took about 40% of our production and we were trying to make their shoes and we kept on making their range of shoes until the late 70s when we had the advent of the EEC and free trade, which meant that overnight Kay said thank you very much and walked. Uh, and they supplied all their shoes from England at that stage. Um, but to get an understanding of of, of the way uh, the business was run at, at, at that time, uh, it, it was, you know, we're looking at Ireland in in a different uh, era when um, the, a lot of people were emigrating out of the country in the 1950s and uh, it, money was tight, it was scarce. Mm-hmm. So the selling of of, of, of shoes must have slowed down uh, a lot you know you must have seen um the factory going down and and yeah it's it's far more uh, complicated than that because in the 50s the style of shoe that was made was very basic it was uh, a standard pattern that everyone wore uh, fashion hadn't crept in at all so i as a young man with an interest in, in things like things like fashion, uh, came about at the right time because we were experimenting with the more pointed toes and the Beatles were starting to appear and all this sort of stuff. And the young uh, had more disposable income eventually and they would want to buy all of this stuff. So instead of having to make the same old bread and butter styles, which you'd 
lose a sale for a penny a pair if it was a penny a pair more than the fellow up in Dundalk could make it you wouldn't get the business you were going into more of a style game and there was a chance of, of expanding the business which we did really I mean we were bouncing along uh, in the 50s making something like two thousand two and a half thousand pairs a week whereas old James Winstanley had been making four thousand we had 130 employees in the 50s and we were only making two and a half thousand pairs a week and working short time and all that sort of stuff yeah when you talk about the way that uh, style changed the way people were looking for more fashionable uh, yes. shoes when did you see all that happening and how did it change when i was a teenager i had all the traditional styles and all this sort of stuff basic very basic shapes and we had to wear the same type of stuff at school and none of these pointed toes or anything fashion like that didn't come around i i remember when i the first money i earned i went out and bought a paisley pattern tie thinking that i was doing the devil and all uh, to be with it <laughs> But being uh, an 18 year old, and I was, yes, I was, I have to admit, I was always interested in uh, fashion and clothing and all that from that age on. And uh, it became a very important part of my uh, ability to manage styling and all that in the factory, which I'll come to much later. But um, the, the, there was no money around in the 50s, and um, all of my. Uh, contemporaries emigrated to the colonies and goodness knows where else to get work and I was one of the the rats that didn't leave the sinking ship <laughs> but the, the economy was dire at that time and uh, I can't really put a date on the time that we started making the more fashionable things but it evolved in about the mid 50s and um, the construction we were making at the time didn't lend itself to uh, the very modern stuff. And when I say the construction, we made uh, what is known as Goodyear welted shoes, which is basically bold leather shoes with, uh, I can't describe you the, the construction, that's too complicated. But as compared to what the lady shoes look like today, where they just stick the sole to the upper, that hadn't happened in men's shoes at all, and our production was primarily men's. And we made men's shoes for ladies as well, and we made shoes for the nuns and so on. Uh, we used to say it was the shoes we made for the nuns was as a penance for them to wear them. <laughs> <laughs> so they were so heavy. And uh, we had our best-selling shoe is a shoe called Cardinal, which the, we made for the clerical trade. Uh, big wide fitting shoes and they could run around inside them nearly <laughs> they were so comfortable but uh, anyway fashion came along and that and then with the young beginning to get more disposable income uh, they wouldn't wear the old-fashioned type of stuff and they had to have the new modern looks and so that really in a way would have been the saving of the factory in the late 50s early 60s mm. The, the tanneries that were supplying you the leather, uh, wh wh yeah. who were they? Well, the, we bought uh, leather from uh, Carrick on Sewer, which was Plunder and Pollock, the name of the firm, that was run by uh, a Czech, Czech, uh, Czech Jewish gentleman. And it's important to say that because all of the expertise for good tanning in Ireland seemed to emanate from Czechoslovakia and that, that area and one of the guys who eventually was running it had, had actually been in concentration camp during the war and had survived and he was um, one of the hitchmans and I went and my son was working in Prague recently and I went to the mosque there and the names of all the, fa the people who had been killed in the concentration camps there's a whole line devoted to the hitchmans and another line to the Poliskis. The Poliskis ran gory leather, uh, and the gory leather was a part of Allied Leathers, a UK firm. Uh, so there was Plunder and Pollock, there was gory, 
there was port law which made upper leather and shoe bottom leather we called it that's the sole leather uh, there was O'Callaghan's in Limerick and there was uh, Dickens in Dungarvan which is now the tannery restaurant um, they made sheepskin which was used for the lining and then there was uh, a tannery in Bally Bay which made sole leather as well and then those leathers we were really um, obliged to use their leathers because they were protected by t- uh, tariffs and quotas in the de Valera regime where everything had to be done to keep the Irish manufacturers going or to develop Irish manufacturing. So we could only buy uh, different types of leathers and we needed different types of leathers like calf and goatskin and so on. Uh, we could only buy them from abroad so we had to get a license from the tanners. The Tanners Federation would issue these licenses to say they could make that type of leather and therefore we could import it. So that that was just one complication we had in the making of shoes. Another was the terrible customs situation, and you had a, a factory running with a whole lot of different machines, and they maybe emanated from the UK or the States or wherever, and you couldn't bring in the spare parts. They had to be passed through customs, and you had the whole place standing still waiting for a broken part to come in. So life was really very, very difficult at that time, uh, trying to compete internally and increasingly to try to compete with the imports. The imports themselves were governed by quota. Once again, de Valera mm. put the quotas. So imports were uh, uh, subject to a quota license, and people used to, the retailers used to buy and sell their quota licenses. But um, it meant that. And, and I would like to go into this in more detail, really. The whole advent of free trade was a major, major part of our life and worry. Did that help or did that hinder your operation? It, well, it, I have to say it hindered, but um, at the same time, uh, we were persuaded to try and meet competition in the world and to be a free trade area where anyone could buy and sell anything. The government's policy was uh, to get the price points as low as they could for their, so people could afford to buy uh, everything that they needed. And when we looked to the government for help in, against imports, we really were pushing against that concept where the government wanted to encourage uh, free trade. They wanted the labour that we had to be more more highly skilled to work in the what became the IT type industry. Uh, they didn't this uh, labor intensive industry wasn't something that the government felt they could support. And I, I re- reading about people like Whitaker and so on, you now begin to understand where the government was coming from. At the time, I was uh, leading the federation, going to the government to try and get them to give us protection against unfair trade from Czechoslovakia and England primarily, uh, because they were eroding and destroying our market. Now, you talk about 1970s being a really interesting time. It was in the 1970s that we lost 40% of our production to the K uh, brand and the other imported, uh, the, the other brands that we were supporting in this country for them. They all then pulled back and supplied from their own factories in England. So it was really a very, very difficult time, and it was the start of my uh, efforts to try and get Winstanley's to stand on its own feet uh, and it, with its own brand, because imports in this period going from 68 maybe up to 80, uh, imports went from about 30% up to about 90% of the Irish market. And that was a really, really difficult thing to cope with. So the only answer, in my mind, was to try and export to get away from this problem and to keep the factory running. So that then starts to open up another book, which I'll talk to you about mm. later. Well, it's good to get an insight to to the, the uh, what was happening with the unions at that time. It, it, there was... Uh, 
there was a definite um, division, was there, between uh, management uh, and and staff? Oh yes, uh, I mean in the old days, uh, the the, the the management just gave the orders and they were carried out willy nilly. Uh, there was no communication between shop floor and management. Um, that's a very modern concept. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, in the 30s, De Valera was uh, bringing in um, protection quotas f- to encourage industry in Ireland. And there were several factories built at that time in the country, like uh, Halliday's in Dundalk um, and various other mm-hmm. factories in different places. And the reason I mention this is that uh, Winstanley's felt that they should get some help from the government to compete against these people who had been financed by the government and there was uh, And did that happen? No, it didn't happen but it it was one of the groundswell of wondering would they liquidate the factory because it wasn't profitable and all of this and the competition was coming from these new factories so there was a lot of uh, trouble in the paperwork. But what was the, the, the city itself, the, the, the poverty, the, the, uh, you're talking about the liberties up around that area. Now, I mean, they, it must have been very hard to, uh, to survive in those days as well if you had a big family. And, um, it was awful. You know. It was awful. And um, I started working at the time when they were all living in, in locally in the liberties. They subsequently uh, the council or government um, went into building outside of Dublin like Ballyfermot and Finglas and so on and then the workforce moved out and they had to commute but in when I started uh, they used to come in from the tenements that were around the Liberties and they had terrible living conditions uh, I have to admit I never was actually in one of the houses because in those days it wouldn't have been appropriate. Uh, management wouldn't want to know. <laughs> and so you're brought up like this. What are you, what are you to do? However, uh, I'll tell you one brief... St- do you want a story? I do, yes, right. please. Yes, go we ahead. had one, one man who had ten children and lived in the Liberties in... A, in a, I forget the name of the buildings, but it might have been Oliver Bond or it might have been... Uh, one of the Guinness uh, tenements. However, he, when we had um, Christmas, we worked on Christmas Eve morning, and I was standing at the wicket gate uh, where they came in and out to go to work and was wishing people a happy Christmas and so on. And this particular guy, I won't give you his name, but he wouldn't wear his teeth in our time, and we came out, and I wished him a happy Christmas, and he turned round, and the sun glinted on his gums, and he said, huh, happy Christmas, me arse. <laughs> now, I, say, I, I always remember that story, because I thought that was very funny that he said that, but what I didn't realise was he was going back into his tenement with ten children uh, to celebrate Christmas with them, and he was he and many like him were delighted to come back to work after Christmas yeah. to get away from that and get back to the back to work and a bit of sanity. And it must have been the responsibility of, of trying to um, you were implying so many of the local people there in that area. Yes. And you know you were trying to to manage this and so did you find it difficult? I mean, was was there? We we spoke the last day about religious um, uh, connotations in in a sense that if you were Catholic, uh, you had less chance of getting a position uh, than if you happened to be born into the uh, Presbyterian or Church of, of Ireland or. Yeah, well, uh, my comment to that was that. I honestly didn't know there was a difference between Catholic and Protestant. I was brought up, my father was from Coleraine, he really resented the activities of the Orangemen and all of that, mm. so we never had any uh, any of that in our house. So I didn't realise that there was a difference uh, until, I suppose, I was working, and certainly it had no no bearing on 
the people who we were employing in the factory. Okay. But I have to say, in all honesty, that my grandfather had uh, very close connections with the Masonic Girls and Boys School, and girls uh, who worked in the office tended to be um, from that background. And we had one guy who said that we only employed Protestants in the office. Well, I think when I joined, uh, even when I joined, uh, that was not so. Really? So that was yeah, in 1952. But before then, then, it might have been. The city, in the 1940s, when you had war going on in Europe, what was it like at that time? Was it more, you know, things must have been very difficult to keep the factory up and going. Yes, uh, one of the things I, I've looked at when I was researching the history was how would they have managed it during the war. And there were frequent references made to shortage of machine parts or what we call grindery, grindery being the tacks and the eyelets and all of the little bits that go into a shoe. And they couldn't get the, the, uh, some of the nails that they needed for production because they came from England and because of the war effort, they weren't prepared to make those and sell them outside of England. They kept them, they needed them themselves. Also, we had great difficulty getting leather. And I think at one stage, they actually had to make shoes with wooden soles during the war to keep going. You were mm. running the business with your brother. Correct. Brian. Did you find it easy to to work with Brian? I mean, sometimes, you know, when you're working with your brother, uh, you know, there would be a different difference in, in opinion and, um, you know, you could have, you could run into all kinds of problems. Did that happen with you? Family businesses, well, the, we had there were three brothers. There was myself, Brian, and then Michael. Michael was the problem. Uh, Michael decided to, he, he went into the shops straight away and Brian and I went into the factory. Uh, Michael was six years younger than me and resented my presence. And when my dad died, uh, I became chairman of the whole shooting match. But it was obvious that Michael always wanted to do his own thing. And uh, he, we got a lot of grief from him because he was a director in the factory as well. But eventually we decided uh, to let him have his head and Brian and I sold our shares in the shops to him mm. and they became a completely independent operation, family-wise. As far as Brian and I were concerned, I think we got on very well. Uh, he had had a, a difficult time starting off because he got TB meningitis when he was at college in England learning the trade and had to take things very easy for a while but eventually he was fit enough to carry out the manufacturing management of the actual shoemaking process. I of course because it was a small family business was a jack of all trades and had to do sales, management, finance, design, you name it, <laughs> buying everything. So you're a jack of all trades and master of none. And Brian concentrated on the production, which was in itself uh, a very difficult job, but he was very good at that. But going back to the unions, the the, the we had an element of, of difficult guys, uh, mainly guys, nearly always guys, in the factory, and you're recording this. I am, I'm afraid. <laughs> yes, go on, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I'll choose my words more carefully then. Okay. We had an element in the factory which we had inherited, I had inherited from going back to the 30s, and the union, as I said, was the workers' union, which was, and we had the district secretary of, I think it was the meat and butchers branch, it might have been the dockers, but anyway, mm -hmm. sufficient to say that the union as such had very little knowledge of what goes on in the shoe trade or in the fashion industry in general. The district secretary from the union therefore used to come in at the behest of the uh, gentleman we had working in the factory, who told him 
what they wanted and the union to justify their position had to jump up and down and try and deliver. So here we had a situation where uh, we were trying to operate a business in a difficult market, uh, dealing with people who didn't have an understanding of the facts of life of the fashion business, but did have an intimate knowledge of maybe butchering and so on. Well, I mean, all of this is is so interesting because uh, you were there, you were an eyewitness to what was happening. Uh, it, just recall for me what the pecking order was, all the way down from management. Right, well, the pecking order, if you call it that, would be uh, myself and my brother as joint managing directors. Uh, my brother then had the foreman of each department reporting to him, and they in turn if you like, managed their department. That's the pecking order. All right. Now, the, 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 the worker on the floor, and that included men and women. because 50-50. Yes. yes. So, um, looking back at it, how difficult was that work? You know, wh wh what were the working conditions there at the time? Well, the working conditions were in a building that had been uh, rebuilt in the early in 1941-42 after the fire uh, we maintained the front of the factory but the back the building the yard and the buildings connected to it at the back of the uh, building had all been destroyed in the fire so therefore we had a single story uh, production unit going the whole length of the site that we own 40 to 48 back lane and that was um, very modern in terms of 1944 but when they were trying to build it they couldn't get steel and they couldn't get this that and the other so for girders in the factory they used railway lines <laughs> so we have the railway lines welded face to face and we had belt drive uh, for all the machines so that was pretty primitive uh, in 1960s uh, when I took over, I mean, I was dealing with uh, a marketplace where maybe shoes had come out of a factory with uh, individual drives to all the machines that conveyor uh, transport. We had uh, belt driven, and then which we then converted to individual drive for all the machines. But we had rack, a racking system where you had 20 pairs of shoes on each rack and they got pushed around. And you can imagine that mayhem uh, there was on the floor when there maybe three weeks it took to make the shoes of all the stuff that would be all over the place on racks. It was very disorganized and computers hadn't been heard of. However, we were then dealing with uh, a union. We wanted to make changes. Uh, they fought all the changes and wanted to be paid for everything when it was changed. In other words, the the motto that we used to use was that they used to demand average or better payment so they get their old average or better to work the new equipment. So the problem we were having was trying to manage uh, a factory that was trying to go into the uh, current uh, Upgrade, upgrade the, system, upgrade the yeah. whole system to be as modern as possible uh, to compete against the guy, the other guys. And we were dealing then with um, the union side, which knew nothing about this because they weren't the shoe union. The shoe union, they were affiliated with the shoe union, and the the wages paid and all were those that were negotiated in in tandem with the shoe union, but from a working point of view and trying to bring in all new equipment or new custom practices, we had a mentality of they wouldn't do anything unless they got guaranteed right, right money or better okay. to do it. Uh, an example being uh, when the calculator in the office, uh, when we went from a hand-operated calculator to an electronic calculator, the union were jumping up and down wanting the girls to be paid extra money to work the new machinery and would guarantee there'd be no redundancies and all of this. So everything we tried to do by way of making improvements from the management point of view seemed to be a slog, a fight, to get it in to rather okay. than be welcomed as, a, as an, a, a way of securing their jobs.
and the and and the, the existing um, uh, machinery and the way that it was working was it creating uh, health risks? Was there a lot of was there, did there dust in the place? Was no. there um, no? The the just let's address the the yeah. dust question. I mean, in the making of a shoe, you created an enormous amount of dust. Uh, because you are scarring it with uh, carborundum paper, or you are using the cutter uh, that took bits off the edge of the sole, and all of this, and uh, nothing but dust, dust, dust. We had a huge, big dust extraction unit, which all the machines in one department were plugged into. So any dust they created was sucked away immediately by this trunking. And other machines that were dotted around the factory when we went off the belt, uh, drive when we had individual units, we could put the fa- machines anywhere. But any machine that had a dust output had its own dust extractor beside it. So right. we we worked very hard to cut down any risk of dust being in the factory. However, there was a little bit of dust. We used to hoover the walls uh, from time to time if, because they were pebble dash before they were finished in the forties and then whitewashed over. So the dust used to lodge on top of the petal, so you you could see that, and we'd hoover it, and we'd hoover any beams and things like that. Well, you didn't have any health and safety in those days. Thank God. Yeah, but... <laughs> no, I mean, we, we just... If health and safety, in today's terms, I shudder to think how they could operate some of the machines we operated, because we had uh, cutters... Uh, trimming maybe round the heel of a shoe, revving at about 15,000 revs uh, to cut cut the leather. And were there injuries? Uh, there must have been yes, people who yes. got fingers we had, cut off. And yeah, well, uh, the, the worst offender um, was the rev press that we called for. That was a press of about five feet long, uh, which cut the soles from the bend. And the bend used to be in turn about, the, if you think of the cow from its neck to its tail, uh, that sort of length, and half of the, the hide would be turned into sole leather. And we cut that up with knives that were about four inches deep, so the man could hold the knife either side of, uh, or either side of the knife he could hold, which was in the shape of a sole, and then he pressed it, but the, but the treadle, and the beam came down with a great big bang. Now, if he was absent-minded and put his finger over the top of the knife and the press came down, he lost his finger. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, uh, in the, all of the years, the 30-odd years that I worked there, nobody lost a finger. But we did have one guy there who had his index finger missing. He always wore his cap in our time, too, which was interesting. He was afraid people would see he'd lost his hair. <laughs> but uh, he lost half his finger in an accident. As uh, Then cuts that we had a... Uh, a medical box and in the office and I know that there were quite a lot of cuts because we used knives and scissors and all of this stuff I see. and uh, the the biggest danger really was the sewing machines that a girl might put her finger through and get a needle in her finger that did happen once or twice but we trained as hard as well as we could to mm. and we minimized the the uh, damage the health, the safety damage, because we were working with very dangerous equipment. And an example was the the uh, trimming knives uh, that revved at about sixteen thousand revs. Um, when we put in fluorescent lighting, mm. the strobe effect of the fluorescent lighting and the trimming knife, it appeared that the knife was standing still because they synchronized. So we had to synchronize the. Uh, special light tubes bulb, you know, the tubes yeah. that went in the first we had to buy special lights so that they wouldn't have this strobe effect so that the people <laughs> wouldn't get it. So you really had to think it through. <laughs> Did you sense that there was aggression? You know, that there were certain people who were outspoken and would be leaders in, 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 in uh, trying it, to exactly, cause trouble? Exactly that. Uh, unfortunately, there were uh, one or two who would be very intelligent guys who were unfortunately working on a very uninteresting job. And my brother used to say that he would never get an intelligent person doing a dull job because it could only cause trouble. They had the whole day to think about how they could 
get me, and maybe that was uh, gave them some satisfaction. <laughs> but there were those guys, and then of course uh, they led the rest. Uh, the rest yeah. would fall in line because they would yeah. fall in line. At the, if they didn't fall in line, they'd be in terrible trouble. But I, um, we had we had a hardcore of people who were difficult, and we had to deal with that. But the, the majority of the people were terrific, and some of them were second and third generation working there as well. And that was fine, and it was a fact of life that we were always going to have these hassles. <laughs> but uh, it didn't make our lives any easier. I mean, I used to think I'd go off to America to sell, and I'd, I'd be there for a week, and I'd come back. Monday morning and there'd be a meeting and I'd be having to tell them the good news we got orders for this, that and the other which I would tell them and then they would try and find ways of uh, turning it to their advantage (laughs) 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 if there was lots of work there that that was a good time to have a go and the best Mm -hmm. time to have a go at management of course was coming up to Christmas house workers, they were people we brought the, the components to in their house and they hand stitched the front of the shoe it was called a moccasin, and that meant it had to have a, the front of it closed, to use a technical term, by hand-stitching. And these outworkers, where, around the city, is it? Or? All around. Up, uh, we had uh, one of our guys used to drive around to the houses with the work and paint them and all this sort of thing. And that was the way it was done. <coughs> the revenue ah. thought that they... Um, they should be classed as workers uh, and employees, but um, there was a big row with revenue about that at the time, but they were definitely classified as outworkers. Was this an advantage for you? These were women doing that kind of work, is this, or were they men? There could be women, or men or children in a house doing it. Yeah, uh, it was up to them. We we put it to the lady maybe in the house who was tied to the house where she'd got a young family and they, she wanted to find some way of earning pin money, if you like to call it that, and she would be uh, happy to do this type of work. It wasn't exploiting in any way, shape or form. They were paid a good rate to do it. And at the same time, they were minding uh, maybe their young babies yeah, yeah, exactly. in the house. And they were desperate for work. Yeah. And, you know, you have to go back then. Um, it's a bit of an aside, but when... Uh, in the 40s and 50s, uh, if a girl got married, she would have to leave. The civil service they had to leave when they got married. Mm-hmm. And to an extent, that happened with us, except it wasn't quite, didn't work quite like that. Uh, the poor, unfortunate girl got, got married. If she wasn't pregnant within six months, they would give her a hell of a hard time and we had one or two cases where the girls were sticking something up inside their smock to make it look as though they were expecting to get turned the heat off but they invariably would have left within the year of of being married because they were going to have a family but heaven help the ones who couldn't have a baby that's extraordinary yeah. wasn't it? oh uh, there was a t- it was a very tough time for yeah. them at that time you were there uh, in with all the responsibilities of looking after the the workforce making sure that the business was coming in the door what was it like how difficult was it to to take that position and to be in that in in that role uh, it was tough <laughs> very tough it was uh, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Um, and it was one problem after another, uh, which you didn't know any better. I mean, it was just the facts of life. Um, it was extremely difficult to manage the factory moving te- technically forward as well. Uh, very, very hard on the uh, workforce to accept modern technology, to understand the need for modern technology, uh, and of course the union uh, waving the big stick the whole time seemed to want to block progress, so you, you had a really tough time working your way through all of that. But at the end of the day, um, they all they just turn around and look at you and say, well, what are we going to do now? It, it was, the buck stopped with me, and... Uh, 
I don't know. You just you just it's one long fight, I suppose. Uh, there wasn't a lot of pleasure in it. I, I never felt like I loved my work. Uh, it's just I I had to do the work, uh, and I had a hundred and fifty odd people depending on me to make it work. We changed our our policy. We we had a a range of shoes that we carried in stock, and we had um, two three travellers on the road, and. We fought for our share of the business out there, I suppose. That's all you can say. Dennis, it's been lovely uh, spending all this time with you and and, um, uh, and recording the your family history. And um, Dennis O'Neill, thank you. Thank you. We've come to the end of this podcast and you've been listening to Dennis O'Neill and excerpts taken from a two-hour-long interview with him. And if you would like to hear that full interview, it's available on our website. That's www.irishlifeandlore.com. And here's a clip from next week's interview with Trevor Wood, who was the MD of Eleanor Wood Limited. So did you grow the business at that stage? I, I, I started it, yes. I, sta I started, I said, well, now the, the proof of the pudding, I've got to get cracking, and I did. I got the profitability going again. I got some of the, I'd started to look at means of, or even at that time to try and get figures out quickly. One of the thoughts my father had was that he was pedantic about um, keeping records and things like that and writing things down and he I, I really blew my one of the reasons I blew my top with him <laughs> he was a great guy in the end because we, we became great friends when, when he retired but uh, he um, he we used to stock take at the end of March and then about November, I'd be called to the office, what in God's name is going down there? And I said one day, what the fucking hell do you think I'm going to do about six months later? <laughs> I really flew at him, and I don't swear. It's against my principles altogether. But okay, <laughs> the red hair flew out of me. <laughs> I'm Maurice O'Keefe, and thank you for listening.